please remain standing for today's scripture reading found in Luke 2. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what the law is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and he was a righteous and devout man, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fallen rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So as Ben said, this is the final sermon in our Songs of the Messiah series, and this might be one of the least well-known songs that is at the beginning of Luke's gospel here. Um, it is traditionally preached around Christmas time as well, even though Jesus has already been born. What you have here at the beginning is, is, a, is a scene. It's the setting that I'll get to in a minute. But what I wanted to mention first is an article that I read this week in the Atlantic online. Uh, the title was called, No you don't really look like that. Uh, Subtitle, A Guide to the New Reality Melting Technology in Your Phone's Camera. It sounds a little overboard, but it's a fascinating read. Essentially, what happened was there was a famous YouTuber. Well, he's well-known. He's not famous because I don't know who he is. He's a well-known YouTuber who noticed as he was trying out the new iPhone's front camera that his face looked really smooth, almost like he had foundation on, but it was just the camera. And so what he did was he went back and he secured the last five versions of the iPhone and he took pictures of himself from the front camera on each one and then he put them up side by side. And sure enough, as you go along, he looks better and better, taking a picture on the same day to the point to where at the end, in the new iPhone, I don't know what it's called, XS or something, he says, and he's right, it looks like he has foundation on. Now, this isn't new, right? I mean, you can get apps, like Instagram has filters and Snapchats, but see, that's the thing. You chose to put the filter on. You used a third-party reality that changed your face when you looked and took a selfie. You see, the thing that was alarming to him was that this was the actual camera itself, He hadn't done anything. So what does this say? Now, in one sense, this isn't new either because unless you use film, that is where photons engage uh, actual chemicals and have a reaction to create an image, right? Nobody does that anymore. If you're using a digital camera, what's happening is different pieces of data are being taken. Multiple photos are being taken and it's synthesizing it into one image that you get. That's how digital photography works. 
But as I read it, I thought to myself, how many things in our life, when we look out and view them, are not the real thing? They're actually a synthesized reality where we take different data points, create something new in the algorithm of our mind, and then view it that way. I actually think Christmas is a lot like that, frankly. I think what happens oftentimes is we take the data point of, of, our, of our family history, we take the data points of our story and movies that we watch and songs that we sing, and, and these aren't all bad, don't get that from me, but we take all of these different data points and synthesize a reality that we impose upon Christmas. But when we read these songs at the beginning of Luke, we're constantly being confronted with the actual thing, with Christmas itself. And so I think, my, I hope, that all of us understand Christmas is a season that celebrates hope. It's a season that celebrates a gift from God. That's absolutely true. And yet I hope that as we've been walking through this Songs of the Messiah series, and as we encounter this last text this morning, we will move from this vague sense of what hope is to a more crystal clear picture of reality. You see, God's peace is a peace that comes in Christ, but it's not a peace that allows us to assimilate all of our preferences into a synthesized picture of who he is or what he came to do. Actually, it's a peace that confronts before it transforms. The message of Christmas is a peace of confrontation. It's a peace through confrontation. It's not a peace that synthesizes reality for us. It confronts us with reality. And so God's peace confronts before it consoles. That's what Simeon is telling us this morning. God's peace, his gift, confronts us before it consoles us. And in fact, it consoles us through confrontation. And so uh, we know this, right? We know that light comes and confronts darkness. That's how light is seen. We know that peace comes through confronting anxiety and disruption. We know that forgiveness comes through confronting sin, that reconciliation in broken relationships comes through the process of confronting the ways that we've hurt others and the way that they have hurt us. So over and over, we understand that true peace is always on the other side of confrontation. And in our text today, we'll see that peace confronts before it consoles. And we'll see that in three ways. It kind of builds to the end. All right, so the first thing uh, is we see in this passage the temple scene. All right, so that's in verse 22 uh, all the way down to the song in verse 29. So the first two verses, what you see is you see Mary and Joseph bringing the newborn Jesus or the young Jesus to the temple in order to be purified according to the law of Moses. Now, you and I, we read this passage and we may think to ourselves that this is merely serving as a setup for the song. And it's certainly doing that. But if we were the original uh, readers and hearers, we would have seen so much more. So we got to kind of do some work to get there. And frankly, we don't have time to do the work to get to every single thing. There's so many wonderful things that are right here just below the surface for us. But one thing that is the most clear, and we will just mention, is that obviously the Exodus would have been in mind here. And we know that because in our text, in verse 22, Exodus 
chapter 13 is quoted. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. So the Exodus would have been in their mind. And if you would have asked an Israelite, how do we know that God saves? And when God saves, what does that actually look like? Every single one of them would have said the Exodus. The Exodus is the paradigm in the scriptures until the resurrection. The Exodus is always the paradigm for redemption, for salvation. So it makes sense that now you have the Messiah, the Christ, who's come. And Luke makes sure that he ties it to the Exodus. But even more specifically, he particularly ties it to something, a particular plague in the Exodus. You remember that as God is finally bringing his people out of Egypt, he brings a plague and all of the firstborn are killed. And so when they get over, uh, sorry, when they get over on the other side of the, of the river of the, of the sea, as they cross, they're setting up now, what does it look like to be a nation that's free? And in the book of Exodus, what you have is a recalling of those realities. And particularly what you have is Moses saying, listen, because of what God did in Israel, now the firstborn animal, male animal and male child must be redeemed. So when, when everyone reads this text, we should see a sacrifice. We should see a lamb. We should see provision. Now, one thing we might not see, though, is we might not see the fact that Israel would have been affected by this daily. It's not just when someone had a newborn baby, right? Because this is an agri- uh, agricultural uh, society. Animals were being born all the time. They're being traded. They're being sold. They're being sacrificed. And so actually, this law radically shapes many people's lives daily. And, and the point that I want to make here is, is pretty simple. And that is the biblical faith, the biblical hope is a practice-rich hope is a practice-rich hope. For example, right now it's Christmas time, right? And we give gifts. Why? Why do we give gifts? Why? Maybe you don't. Most of you do. But why do you give gifts? And who do you tell? And how do you tell our children? Children, how do, why, do we get, why do we give gifts? Yes, thank you. It's a wonderful answer. I'll give you your money later after that. That was perfect. Right, but how, how does this young gentleman know this? Because someone told him that. And you see, if you keep reading in Exodus 13, they say, Moses says, as you continue to practice this, a sacrifice for the firstborn male, eventually your child will ask you, why do we do this? And you will say, the Lord brought us out of Egypt by his mighty hand. And over and over and over, there are these practices that are built into the life of Israel where this intergenerational discipleship is happening. And the parents are called to be faithful in practicing and in teaching why we do the things we do. And so you might ask, mommy and daddy, why do we give money at the end of every service? Is it because the church needs it? Only secondarily. It's because God gives us all things and he wants us to trust him. And so we give of the first fruits of all that he's given us. That's why we give our money. Why do we come to church every Sunday, mom and dad? 
It's because on the first day of the week, Jesus was raised from the dead. And we gather all over the world as Christians on the first day of the week to celebrate and to sing and to be consecrated and sent out into the world. And you can see, you can just keep thinking about all of the things we do. And so, yes, absolutely. If you give gifts this Christmas season, it's a great idea to say, why do we give gifts? And say, it's in memory of the greatest gift that could be given to us. And that is Jesus, our Savior. Or whatever way in which you want to say that. But I don't want us to miss that because we could easily read this and just think this is a setup to the song. But in fact, it's a celebration of all of the practices that God gives his people to shape us and to change us. And so we see at the beginning that it's this practice-rich faith that leads Mary and Joseph into the temple in the first place. And then you do get the setup of the rest of the scene where now this man is introduced named Simeon. We don't know a lot about Simeon. In fact, this is really the only place he shows up. It's a very common name in the New Testament. He, he wasn't a priest. We don't know if he was old. He probably was, but it doesn't say he was old. But oftentimes we, we envision him as an older man. And, and he comes into the temple. And it says here in the text that Simeon was a righteous and devout man. Now it says the same thing about Elizabeth and about Zechariah right before this. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he comes in the spirit to the temple and and says, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, he receives him. Don't freak out. Moms, especially when I read this, it said he took him. I thought to myself, what would it be like if Mary and Joseph bring in their new baby in and this random man in the temple comes up and just takes the baby? This word actually means to receive. And that's important because it, it denotes that she offered him. Something in the interaction showed Mary that this something was happening. And so Simeon receives the baby and then bursts out into song. And I want to point out now the song of Simeon. So we see the temple scene setting up, leading us to the song of Simeon. Now in verse 29, we see, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That depart in peace is actually what makes this song well known. Uh, In Latin, it's nunc dimittis, which just means uh, now dismiss. And there have been poems and uh, Rembrandt has an art piece and you can Google Nunc Dimittis and you'll find all types of works of art. And when you look at different works of art, you see how Simeon has captured our imagination. We see over the years how this song has, has captured our imaginations, particularly around what does it look like for a man who's been righteous and devout to live his whole life waiting to see, in this case, a baby that he trusts God his whole life, that he will see the Lord's salvation. And yet all he sees is a baby. He didn't see the fulfillment of his consolation or Israel's consolation. And yet it captures this faithful and patient man. Now I said at the beginning that the peace of Christmas confronts us before it consoles us. And I actually think when we pay attention to what's happening in this song, we pay attention to what's happening with Simeon, we too will be confronted. You see, if if he really believes that now he can depart, basically what he's saying is, I can die now. I can die now. What this teaches us, what this shows us, is that he clearly had been waiting his whole life for this. 
And that reveals nothing unique about Simeon. It actually reveals something very common between Simeon and all of us. And that is, as Ben mentioned earlier, there is a hope, there is a longing in each and every one of us that we're waiting for. And I'm curious, what is it in your life, in your heart, and I suspect it's come about in different iterations your whole life, where you too would say, if I just had this one thing, then I could die. If I just had this one thing, then I could go in peace. Then I would finally be happy. When can you say, now dismiss your servant? Now, I reflected on this. And some of the things I came up with were a little surprising. And I want to ask you, you might not be sure, but I'm wondering, maybe you'll think when you have enough power, then you can rest and be vulnerable, right? Then you can lead out of vulnerability when you have enough power and no one can take your job. No one can take your resources. No one can take your company from you. Maybe when you think you have enough control, then you'll finally feel safe. Then you'll trust. Then you'll rest. When you have just enough control, then it's responsible to trust, right? Then it's okay. Maybe when you have enough accolades, then you can feel like you have dignity. Maybe when you have enough accolades, then maybe you can receive the love from your parents because they might be proud of you. Maybe it's when you will stand out enough, when, you, when you'll stand out enough in the crowd that you'll finally stop striving. But until then, until you stand out just enough, and usually just enough means a little more than anyone else, then you can stop striving. Then you can rest. Then you can stop posing, whether it's as a parent or a business person or a Christian or a neighbor or a student. Whatever our answer is to Okay, when this happens, then I'll feel safe. Then I'll feel uh, capable. Whatever the answer to that question is, that is your Christ child. Do you understand that? That is the thing that you're waiting for. That is the hope that we sung about. We said, we have found our hope. We have found our peace, but have you? Or are you still, yeah, I know Jesus is my peace, but I need a little more what? What? That is your Christ child. And I think that's where we're confronted before we can receive peace. Remember I said, this passage teaches us that confrontation comes before consolation. And over and over and over, you and I are confronted with what are we putting our hope in? And so we see in verse 29 that Simeon really was waiting for the consolation of Israel in God's provision, not in his own performance, but in God's provision. And then if we just quickly look at verse 31 and 32, we see... Isaiah all over the place, honestly. We've seen Isaiah, his prophecies all over the place in all of our scripture reading. But I want to point out one from Isaiah 40. So I'll read again the song. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Isaiah 40 verse 5 says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so what this essentially means, and this might seem normal to us, but the very distinction of Jew and Gentile is about to be broken down. And for you and I, the very distinction of any color of our skin, any socioeconomic bracket, any nation we live in is broken down in Jesus. That's, what else could this mean? Except to say that this is in the presence of all peoples. This is in the presence of everyone. This salvation goes to 
everyone. And if it goes to everyone, it means it goes everywhere. And if it goes everywhere, it means it goes to every part of our lives. And so this is an invasive light that happens. This is a light that's been waited for. This is a light that has been prepared in the presence of all and all can see it. This is what Paul actually says in Acts 26. He says, I stand here, therefore, testifying to both small and great. Small and great. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You see, this has been waited for. Salvation is prepared before all. And here we're confronted again because we're confronted with the reality that we really kind of think we have it figured out. Right? We in the Presbyterian church, we got it figured out. We in the Baptist church, we really have it figured out. We in the church in America really have it figured out. Well, some things we do. Some things we do have figured out. But the reality is, is that we must be confronted because salvation comes from without for everyone. You see, we don't earn or keep or maintain any favor with God because we have something figured out. No, salvation always comes from the outside, from the first to the last. It keeps coming and it keeps offering us mercy. And here again, we're confronted before we're consoled because there are areas in our life that God's peace continues to confront us because we realize that we're trusting in ourselves and we think we have it figured out. And we think God's pretty pleased with us and happy with us. But actually what Simeon says is, no, the light of the Lord, the peace of the Lord is seen by all, but it comes from without. So this is a particular God who brings his salvation through a particular people, but to the entire world. And so there is no person and no part of our life that's not confronted by this light. And in Jesus... There is an offer of peace. There's an offer of peace with God. There's an offer of peace with self. And there's an offer of peace with others. But how? How does peace come? I keep saying that we're confronted before we're consoled. But how does peace come about after we're confronted? And that brings us to the last part of the text. And that is the appointed stumbling block. And so I'll just read 33 through 35. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So now what you have is Simeon, I imagine him handing the baby back to Mary, but then looking her in the eye with these words. Looking her in the eye with these words. And basically what he's saying is that not everyone is going to receive this good news as good news. The very coming of Jesus is going to be divisive. Before it can bring the consolation of Israel, the message of Jesus has to confront Israel. And in fact, it does. And we see that over and over as Jesus is rejected and ultimately killed. And, and I think what we need to see here is that this message of peace, this message of Christmas, we've taken different ideas and we've synthesized it into a pretty bland, sort of blunt offering in the Christmas season. But in fact, the message of Christmas does have a very sharp edge of confrontation to it. 
Because anytime Jesus is taken seriously, anytime his claims are taken seriously, it does divide. It divides households. It divides friendships. It divides lots of things. But it also offers consolation, which we'll get to in a second. But I find it interesting that, that he looks at Mary and he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. We're going to come back to that, but I want to point that out because the things I'm about to say, I want that in the back of your mind. He looks at Mary and he says, it's going to be a confrontation in Israel. Some people are going to stumble over Jesus. And even for you who love him, even for you who are faithful, even for you, Mary, the sweet mother of this child, you too won't get out unscathed. And that actually has something to say to us in a minute. But this is what I'm wondering. Here we see most clearly how God's peace confronts before it consoles. Here's some things that I think it confronts for us. I think it confronts in the Christmas message our human autonomy. You see, most people want to take the message of Christmas and synthesize it like through an algorithm of a digital camera and and smooth some things out, right? To make our lives seem like what God really wants for us is to be happy. And to be happy means we get what we want all the time. That's called autonomy. That's called self-lordship. And I think this message of Christmas confronts our human autonomy. I think it confronts our desire to be our own master, right? Because I think at the end of the day, all of us struggle with really just wanting to call the shots on our own life. I mean, deep down, we really just want in the end to say, I'd like to do what makes me feel most comfortable. But the, but the message of Christmas confronts that. It also confronts our desire to cut corners when it seems to advantage us. Right? Sometimes the teachings of Jesus are very convenient for us, and sometimes they're very confusing and painful. And I actually think that's what Jesus is getting at with Mary. You don't think that Mary wanted to step in and tell Jesus like Peter did? Oh, no, not for you. Death is not for you, my son. Can you imagine what it was like for Mary to watch her child be mocked and scorned his whole life, at least since he started his ministry? And yet obedience for her looked like trusting the Father, not trusting her own good, God-given even maternal instinct to protect. But she laid down her will for the Father's will and watching the Son walk through all that he walked through. But oftentimes, following God, the peace of God comes through the pain of self-denial. Right? This also confronts our idea that God is small and tameable. He comes in a baby. Christmas confronts our idea that salvation is mainly about giving me the life I think I deserve. Christmas confronts our cultural views of power and vulnerability. Has anyone more powerful ever lived than our Lord Jesus? And has anyone ever been more humble than our Lord Jesus? After walking with with people over these last short 10 years of ordained ministry, after walking through my own challenges, I no longer think it's cute when I read things in the Bible that say, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. That used to be kind of cute to me, if I'm really honest. And now it makes me tremble. And so I'm confronted often by my own arrogance, by my own need to stand out, by my own desire to, at the end of the day, call the shots. I'm confronted constantly. But then I experience peace. And here's the way peace comes in the Christian life. It comes through repentance. 
There's really no other way. What is repentance? But repentance, simply put, is I'm walking this way and I'm confronted with something new, in this case, in God's word, and I have to turn and go a different way. That's basically how peace comes in the Christian life. And honestly, repentance always feels like death at some level. It always feels like a sword piercing your soul, just like Simeon said. Because in reality, it feels like death to expose your failings and shortcomings to others. It feels like death to expose selfishness in the light of the eyes of God and maybe even more so in the light of the eyes of others. And sometimes it feels like death to be honest with ourselves. But you see what happens is that we have two options. As he says, there will be the fall and rising of many, but this is what will happen when Jesus is experienced. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. That's what Simeon says in verse 35. The thoughts of your hearts will be revealed. If you're walking up and Jesus confronts you and he offers you peace and consolation, you have two choices. You can either repent and turn in his direction toward him, or you can try to push through in your own autonomy. And that's when stumbling happens. That's when you trip. That's when you fall. That's when you oppose him. And that's what Simeon says will happen with some. You see, repentance is kind of like a surgeon, really. A surgeon goes in to remove the cancer. But before he can cure or help, he has to cut you. And it doesn't feel good. And yet it brings healing. And that's what repentance feels like. And that is why and how for us to For us to be consoled, for us to experience the peace of God in Christmas, we must be confronted and turn from our own ways. That really is the message of Christmas. God's peace confronts before it consoles. But there's one more thing to note in this passage. And it's the way that Jesus provides peace and consolation to us. You'll notice that many will fall and rise Isn't that how it works though? You fall before you rise. That's certainly how it worked with Jesus. You see, Jesus lives this perfect life. The only life that when exposed to the light of the father is still beautiful and radiant. And yet he took the next step and he chose to take the fall that we deserved so that we then could experience the rising that we don't deserve apart from him. Do you see that? Rising and falling must happen. That's how sin is dealt with. But the question is, who's rising and falling? And when we turn and trust in Jesus, it's his falling, not ours. And it's his rising, not ours. And this is also the hope of Christmas. Jesus took upon our death that we deserved and was risen on the third day. That's why Simeon says, this salvation was appointed. And so this Christmas season, when you feel confronted in your sin, know that when you turn to Jesus, it's his falling and his rising that is also given to you in this gift. And so although it feels like death, know that Jesus died the actual death. And although it feels scary, know that Jesus was the one who walked through the ultimate terror of being separated from the Father. So that you and I know that when we take that step of repentance, 
when we accept the confrontation and turn from our own ways, we will be met with consolation. We'll be met with peace. And that is how peace confronts before it consoles. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would show us by your mercy two things. One, where are these areas where we are confronted by your mercy? Where are these ways that we are walking and even hiding it from ourselves, but we know that freedom won't be found there? Please confront us, but then console us as we look to Jesus and not to our own righteousness. Console us as we look to his falling, knowing we don't have to fear a fall. Know that we look to his rising so that we can trust in our rising as well. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.